Welcome to the Retiring Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we will discuss how to defer taxes on the sale of your property, earning passive real estate income, and everything you need to know to go from active investor to passive investor. Join us as we interview passive investment sponsors, explore the journey of other retiring real estate investors, and share our due diligence process we perform to select passive investments. Investment advisory services provided by Insight Investment Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This podcast is only intended for clients and interested investors residing in the states in which we are registered to provide investment advisory services or exempt from registration. Please contact us to determine if the firm provides investment advisory services in the state where you reside. All content on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Material presented is believed to be reliable sources, and no representations are made by our firm as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. Insight Investment Advisors LLC and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice, and nothing herein should be construed as such. Always consult with your tax advisor or attorney regarding your specific circumstances. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retiring Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Bruckman. I'm joined by John Burley. We had to stop talking before I hit record on this podcast because we were, John was dropping too many good, good nuggets that I'm like, dude, we got to stop. We have to record this. John, how are you? I'm doing awesome, Brandon, and been enjoying the talk and looking forward to continuing with everybody out there. Yeah, absolutely. John, can you, for our audience, can you, I want to let you introduce yourself and and take folks where you want to take them. Give our folks an idea of, of who you are, what you're working on, and, and a little bit of the background of, of where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of big picture. I started in 1979. So in the education space, I mean, I got to work with guys like Nickerson and Kuhn and Reed, the guys that were before Allen and Lowry. You young guys listening don't know those names, but they were kind of the everybody thought I'm the grandfathers, but there was actually great grandfathers ahead of them. Um, and, and we were talking about Brandon, fortunately, and, and you and I've been to a lot of events. The education really hasn't changed. They're teaching the same stuff they did 50 years ago. Kind of the, the whole premise of the education has always been how we can do deals without money or credit. And it's like you can't do them. And it, although there's work, a lot of work, a lot harder than they make it sound. And I was always kind of like, yeah, you can, but why would you? So I mean, when I look at real estate, I look at it. Cause I come out of I come out of the Wall Street uh, world of Wall Street, like you did. We formed a private equity company. I formed a private equity company in 1989. So literally 20 years before Wall Street came out, I went into more of the single family home space. We raised over the years 600 million dollars. We placed it for long term. Most things we hold 15 to 20 years, and it was always like, yeah, you can do this without money in a limited way, mm-hmm. but why would you? I mean, so every time we find a sub two or an owner finance or, you know, we do a lot today of the the assumptions to get the older loans, we buy them. But the most deals we do are cash and or leverage through a bank. Uh, People are like, oh, interest rates are too high. They're seven and a half. There's a perspective. When I started, they rose to 18.6. So sub 10 is a dream. Um, And so what we do is we just do long, long term. Um, we're very unique, as you and I, we were talking in the space, about 2% of private equity fund-type companies, um, to kind of just lump all those names together for everybody, about 2% work on a profit basis, and everybody else works for a fee. And what I mean by that is we don't get paid unless we earn. So our clients reserve, receive a preferred rate up front, 
and then we get a split of the profits if we generate. And if we don't generate, we don't get it paid. So all the adversarial that's normally out there between a uh, an investor and a property manager, between a fund and an investor, it's all adversarial. The funds and the property managers, I don't blame them because that's the model. They're trying to figure out how to generate more expenses and fees because that's how they get paid. When what the clients want is less fees and more income. And so what we do is we... I took the adversarial out. We just completely aligned it where everything is every dollar I don't spend, my client makes 50 cents and I make 50 cents. And every dollar I make, my clients make 50 and I make 50. And the only thresholds are they get paid their preferred rate of 4%. I'm not taking any 2% fee or all that guaranteed stuff like Wall Street does. And as a result, our clients make a lot more money. Um, we're able to grow and expand and make more money ourselves and everybody wins. And so it's just a unique model, and it's the one we've been doing. We spend a lot of time talking to clients about, I spend a lot of time thinking about this too, the shared economic interest that folks have. And you really, as you guys have done, you really got to dig in and understand how do you really make money? And then what are those drivers that, that make you make money? And are those the same things that I want? And when you kind of tear that apart a little bit, you found some of those sort of misalignments or misinteractions with those and you remove them. And yeah. it's, it's a huge thing for people to be conscious of, isn't it? It, it, it really is, Frank. So look, the, the whole model, the whole Wall Street-based investing model, which, which actually goes back it, literally into the 17th, the model we're using literally is from the 17th century colonial model, primarily of Great Britain. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, and then, you know, they were the ones who came up with P.E. ratios so that you could make up a reason to spend more money than a company's worth and all the stuff Wall Street does to bring in more fees. And I understand it. If you get paid for fees, you should generate fees. Yeah. And just to me, the the model was so inherently flawed. I mean, so I remember when I when I formed the company. Uh, we were doing all the property management that I taught. I, I was just about to finish getting my CCIM, and I'm kind of realizing, like, wow, all we're doing is teaching me essentially how to screw the client out of fees. The problem is I'm the client because 70% of our fund is owned by me. So it's like this doesn't work. All these, all these models are so flawed. And the returns are so pathetic. I mean, yeah, everybody makes money in 19, 20, and 21, but do you make money in 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12? Because that's the true test of a model. Yeah. And I would, would put it to you, most models really aren't technically a model because they don't have a mechanism to thrive when markets go down and when markets are jittery like we're in now. Mm -hmm. Um we're seeing, even with the interest rates going up and the volatility, we're seeing a flood of new capital wanting to come in yeah. just because it's like, look, we like that. We like getting a four or five percent sure thing rate. But I don't want to go to an Internet bank for that because all I'm making is five percent. I'm not going to get anything else. Mm -hmm. there, there's no extraordinary tax benefits that are going to offset half to 100 percent, quite frankly, of the income stream. There's no growth. There's no upside. And so we've actually, it's interesting, with the real estate market a lid in the jitters, with the interest rates going up, which there's pain in that, but there's also opportunity. Um, and a lot of our investors leverage, but when we're at these sort of rates, more and more of my investors, they're just going cash. Um, they get that, you know, deploying cash. And as you know, I mean, we're on a podcast, but you and I know, Brandon, and you're a true financial guy. 
the world's not a podcast. How how it's described on podcasts is not how it really worked. First of all, if it was that easy, there'd be no money in the space because everybody would have already taken every cent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you know, you you work for your money. I mean, if you're a good operator, you work really, really hard. You can get extraordinary returns, even in a in a market like today. And we're seeing a lot of people with the the scares in the banking industry. Um, a lot of people, you know, moving their money out of the banks into old favorite considered safe haven assets like real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, the only real world podcast is this one, right? <laughs> right here, right now. There's not a we'll lot of them out you, there, buddy. We'll tell you. Yeah. We'll tell you what's going on from our perspective. <laughs> Talk about this single family. This is fascinating that the single family housing market has turned into this cool place for for people to be, and our Wall Street friends are are into it now. Talk about those dynamics now. Is it more competitive for, for you to be in this space? Where are these people going to yeah. go on? Because I, I just feel like. So I, I, yeah, always really love, I always love when silly slash stupid money shows up in volumes and throws more money at it because it just means more money for me. Yeah. So we literally came into the space in 89. Um, I did single family. Look, I do all of the different sectors of real estate. I mean, I have it all. And, you know, we have commercial, we have a lot of different stuff. I really looked at as the founder and the CEO of a for-profit um, private equity company. My really, my job, my sole job is not what most people think. Most things like, oh my God, it's John Burley. A lot of people introduced me as like, Lily, this is the most famous guy you've never met. Um, and but and everybody thinks it's all about the making these amazing returns, doing the creative financing, doing all that stuff that we do. But really, in my heart, no. My sole job is to reduce and mitigate risk. I'll translate it. Don't lose any freaking money ever. And you know, we're we're now in our thirty fourth year. We don't have a losing year. Not because I'm a genius, but because I don't take stupid risks. Every single piece of real estate, the thousands and thousands of properties we bought, all of them cash flowed from the day we bought them. They all made money. And for me, it's kind of like fifth grade math. People like going, geez, how did you not get caught in the big, huge crash that happened in seven, eight, you know, in those ranges? Like, look, I wasn't a genius. Anybody who says they were a genius, they called the market is lying. Look, I understood fifth grade math. I didn't even need to multiply or divide. I just understood fifth grade math. This is the rate of return we're looking for. And like, dude, the the price went up. The rents didn't follow very close. You know, the debt servicing was more. And it's like, I'm not going to make any money. And I don't buy houses hoping that the market will let them go up in value. G- going up in value, appreciation, that's just luck. You mm-hmm. just position yourself. And sometimes we have crazy 2020s. And... Then we have, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, where it doesn't move at all. And so it's like I was always like, look, the suckers got to make money day one off the cash flow at an acceptable rate of return. If we get tax benefits, great. But I've been doing this a long time, Brandon. So, I mean, I've seen tax benefits almost completely wiped out in the Tax Reform Act of 86. I mean, so my spreadsheets, literally, I put down appreciation zero. I put down tax benefits zero. And if we make our nice rate of return, then – then we'll take it. I always looked at this as investing in the real estate is like getting a bowl of ice cream. Just call it vanilla. So I've got a bowl of vanilla ice cream. And what needs to be in the bowl is the ice cream. And the ice cream is the income stream. If I'm flipping the ice cream is that I truly got equity when I bought it, not hoping it'll go up and I get lucky or I, I can find somebody dumber than me with more money, which a lot of you have found out recently if you're out there trying to flip. There's not a lot of people dumber than you that have more money. Uh, doesn't work that way. So you've got to actually buy them wholesale. And I learned in the old days when we bought for 65 cents on the dollar. 
and um, or we didn't buy. And so the IFKIN, though, was the rental income that every month I'm making the income stream after all expenses for real, real expenses, not pretend expenses, real expenses. And so that was the ice cream. And then, look, ice cream is better with chocolate sauce. Everybody knows that. If you don't like chocolate sauce, wow, we might not be a match to work together. Yeah, just, chocolate just, sauce stop, is- just stop listening if you don't want if you don't want chocolate sauce in your ice cream. You're going to want to leave the podcast now. Yeah, you're going to go. And look, if it makes you easier, if you're worried about the calories, look, it's fat-free, calorie-free, Atkins diet are free. Oprah approved it. Uh, Dr. What's-His-Name approved it. Um Chocolate sauce. Chocolate sauce is tax benefit. It makes the ice cream better, but you don't need it. And then the whipped cream, and geez, now some of you are going, oh my God, all the calories whipped cream. Whipped cream is better than chocolate sauce. The whipped cream, like, cures cancer. Okay. So everybody wants my whipped cream now. The whipped cream's appreciation. What most investors do out there, it stuns me. The bigger the firms, the worse it is, as you know, is they literally buy a bowl that's empty. There's chocolate sauce in the bottom of the bowl. That's the tax benefits. And then they wait around for the whipped cream to show up, and then the ice cream plops in last. Where I was like, ice cream goes first. And the reason we did more single-family home is because everybody in the 80s knew. That was the era of the big general partnerships, Mm -hmm. uh, which had crappy docks, and most of them collapsed with the Tax Reform Act of 86. Most of them collapsed. So that big savings loan crisis was primarily caused by an act of the Congress and the Senate and the president. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mr. Reagan, I loved him as president, but you did sign this sucker. Mm-hmm. They took away the tax benefits. It was kind of like, um, yeah, you remember Star Trek. You know, Star Trek is like, you know, you had matter, antimatter, you know, the warp engine, you put them together, nothing matters. Well, in the old days, it was literally, they had such accelerated depreciation that, you know, you could drop into Milwaukee, buy a $10 million building, lose 250000 a year in, in negative cash flow, but you got $500,000 in tax benefits. So on paper, you made two fifty, and tax rate was 50% back then. So it's like, wow, this is a good deal. Mm-hmm. Tax Reform Act comes and you're... You know, your $10 million building is now worth $4 million to $6 million. And even though you got a real loan with 20% down, you just walked away. Mm-hmm. Everybody always knew single-family homes, j- just on, on doing a, a, a straight rate of return, they made more money. I mean, so people are lining up today trying to buy big buildings for two, three, four cap rates, maybe in your city, five or six. And we all knew that the single-family home cap rates were 10, 12, 15%. Just nobody wanted to do the work, and everybody thought it's easier to have a building. But what we found, it took us about two years to get it perfect, the model. What we found is that we could run it like a building mm-hmm. and just have a huge portfolio. But mm-hmm. we had all – so we had to have all the economies. We couldn't buy five houses. We needed to buy a portfolio. So when an investor comes on with us, even if they're only getting five houses and they're separately in your LLC, we do it on mainly a joint venture model. So you're not tied to anything else. You've got your portfolio, your small portfolio, but it's all within the uh, within the private equity company. And so we figured out that you know most people don't want to rent, but they want to own. So we went to an owner finance model with true 30-year installment contracts without calls and balloons and provisions. So literally clients paying for 20, 25, 30 years every month, just cash flow. You know, they took care of it. We figured out how to get rid of the expenses. We have a, a screening. Problem. I remember when Dodd-Frank came into effect in 14, everybody's all freaking out. What are you going to do with the underwriting? It's like their underwriting standards are inferior to the standards I've had since 91. The standards are a joke. Um, you know, so we do like six and a half residents for one for one property. Um, 60, about 65% of our residents truly end up owning the home. 
because we set them up to win, not lose. Um, you know, we, we don't do one or two year options like people teach at seminars because they don't work for regular people. We, um, you know, on the safety side, everything was about grassroots. I call it lunch pail Joe. Mm-hmm. regular people, regular neighborhoods. I mean, so our, our normal profile of our home, it's a class B neighborhood. I never do class C. The reason is I did class C. It doesn't work. It's a toxic culture. You're fighting everything always. Um, when I say operators, well, we do class C to get all the government money. I see almost always a bad operator because mm-hmm. you don't know what to do. You think the government money is good. When is doing business with the government good? This is not the model we're looking for. Um, and, and so, you know, we do class B, regular families, regular hoes. I call it lunch pail Joe. You know, I kind of joke, but it's true. Like if I go into a neighborhood and the people are jogging, you know, like with mommies, with baby carriages, you know, the neighborhood's too nice because regular people don't jog. <laughs> By the same token, if I go into a neighborhood and people are like running, you know, with handbags and purses, the neighborhood's not nice enough. All of our neighborhoods, you know, when when my wife, I have a very – very beautiful, wonderful wife, two kids who are now adults, but when they were babies, my kind of rule of thumb was I didn't buy in any neighborhood that I wouldn't be cool with my wife and babies going at seven o'clock at night to show the house. And if it wasn't good enough for my wife and babies to go, I knew I needed to go a couple miles the other direction and get into a better neighborhood. Because it's like, you know, the thing with Class C, it's like, and I know it's, it's the little darling of Wall Street, which should tell you so much about Wall Street. What good man and wife what good mom and dad what good family are going to buy a classy neighborhood and put their kids in those schools and let their kids live in that neighborhood with gunshots done so how do you expect the property to work for the long term if you can't put a good family in so we were you know we spend a little bit more money because we make more spending money now we're not buying fancy class a stuff Rock solid class B. The other thing is class B. Here's my bet now with commercial. Geez, I mean, thank God you and I don't own a portfolio of office buildings in Chicago, huh? Yeah, no kidding. Or I, insert got, major city here, right? Any major – because I, I know a, a friend of my son's works for a big insurance company that has their main offices in Chicago. They had a building that used to have 20,000 employees in it. After COVID, they're sub 500. They've got four and a half years left on the lease, and they're walking. But, oh, they'll convert them to condos. Well, who wants to live downtown if they don't work downtown anymore? Some people, but Some not people a bunch. Do. Yeah. Yeah. We and, see that here. And in a big city like a Chicago, Phoenix, good luck on any mass scale converting those things and the zoning and the cost. I mean, you, yeah. they're never going to pass. Yeah. And, and so what we did is – we went into the regular neighborhood to where regular people can afford to live, which if I'm a big city, it means I'm driving half an hour to an hour to go to the suburbs where they live. Regular people, regular houses. With the FICO scores being so flawed right now, and it was intentional and deliberate, almost 35% of America cannot own a home and does not own a home. We provide the owner financing, and about 75% of them want it. Mm. Many can't qualify. Many can. We have very strict standards of underwriting. But here's my bet. My bet is that mommy and daddy who love each other, who have children, can move into the family home, their dream home, their forever home, and make the payments and keep food in their children's belly. And in America with a middle class, today in America more than ever, if you're middle class and you want to work, you're employed. Mm-hmm. There, there is no real unemployment for middle class who wants to work. There isn't. I understand. I mean, some places, a lot of cities, you can still make more money not working than working. 
I can't see myself ever having done that, but I get why some people would. I, I'm not judging there in any way. So, I mean, my bet is that a mom and dad can keep food in their children's belly and a roof over their head in their forever home that they own. So we literally have most of our residents stay over 10 years. Uh, they stay and they pay and they take care of the home as if it was their own because it is. So those huge things about getting the rent and doing the repairs, the worst parts of being a landlord, we eliminated 95% of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and we got a model that flawed where the residents just stay and pay and pay. And we have, you know, huge amounts of properties within the neighborhoods we're at. Um, we invest in 12 different states, but all the states we're in, I learned a long time ago, I have to have my boots on the ground, my people trained by me. We can process through home office, but, you know, randomly hiring a real estate agent in another city is not a plan. You're hoping to get lucky and you're not going to a lot. Talk about that in a more detail of, of how you look to scale in this space, the single family home space, because I judge and correct me if I'm wrong. I judge this has been the big holdup for larger pools of money like your Wall Street and private equity to get into this space because scaling in this way is difficult. Am I right or wrong about that? You are absolutely right. And, it, and here's their quandary. So I like to look at both sides, not just my side. Mm-hmm. They are so unbelievably incredible at raising money. And it's one side of the house gets paid to raise with no consequences of what the return is. And they get paid to raise. And look, if that's what I had chosen to do for a living, I would raise and raise and raise just like they do. So they literally raise not millions or tens of millions, a hundred millions. They be like they raise billions of dollars that they have no place to put it. And they don't care because they're not paid based on a return they're paid on the raise and assets under management that's their model almost always and so i mean when they first started coming out so in you know that 9 10 11 period five of the biggest funds and i won't mention names because we confidentiality but five of the biggest funds they know who i am they know i was the premium operator in the space they know i had gone out decades before them and they knew that my model really really worked um they paid me large fees, consulting fees, to review their models. Told all five of them, your model is inherently flawed. It will not work. Mm-hmm. You know, this was designed in a over a conference table by non-field operatives who don't understand the real-world economics. In theory, your model works. In the real world, your model will fail, which it did. Which is, you know, I mean, Blackstone right now is in default on their flagship fund. They can't do redemptions. Mm-hmm. They're nine ten months now in default cannot redeem the funds they're only answering and responding to 30 percent of their things while at the same time they're doing another like 35 billion dollar raise that is just completing while in default because people just throw money at wall street it, it's insane but the reality is they can't scale how they think they can sell because they think it's they think it's like well there's virtually unlimited shares of apple there's not unlimited but you can buy them you just have to overpay and they don't get that you can't walk into Milwaukee or any city in America. You can't bounce in and start buying 100, 500, or 1,000 houses a month without destroying the integrity of the market. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then their models are so flawed because where you really make your money long term is that you're in the same space, always buying all the time. When the market is and you're a contrarian, when the market is low, you buy more. When the market is high, you buy less. Mm-hmm. But the great deals come years after you're in a market space, not when you open it. And so that most of them have literally in the beginning, it was crazy. Well, we're going to put $10 million into Milwaukee, and when the $10 million is in, we're done. It's like, 
uh, and then you know they want to go into ten different cities with ten million dollars rather than putting a hundred million in one city because they think well that diversifies. Well, everybody knows in the street diversification stood for diversification. <laughs> diversification was designed to give upper middle class intelligent people a feeling of safety for their emotions and their psychology. The reality is it taps the upside more than the downside. Mm-hmm. Because your good stocks can't pull the beaters up, but when the market goes down, they all go. Diversification actually gives you a worse return. Now, regular person working at a job, buying the Vanguard S&P 500, who's never going to learn how to do this space, that's a good solution for you. It's better than doing nothing. But for people like that are listening now who either want to learn how to raise and place or who want to place, that's not where you go. It's not what you do. Hey, can I do a, a quick commercial? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so I do three events a year. My students say there's there's two things. There's one thing they love about me and one thing they hate about me. They love that I'm an active practitioner in the street, real world, who is leading edge on this, who institutions look to what we're doing. And then the worst thing they say is that I'm a real operator who does it because I don't do a lot of education. I do three events a year. We do have one coming up October 27th to 29th, just a short commercial Go to johnburley.com, J-O-H-N-B-U-R-L-E-Y.com. There's a lot of free downloads there. There's also, you can find out of our events, our next events in April after the one in October, because I really only do three public events a year. And people go, why don't you do more events? And it's like, I love the teaching. I love the mass results of our students. However, if you know what you're doing in this space, Teaching is like the least amount of money you can make. Running a seminar company is like so little money compared to a property. So as, as an example, I mean, we're talking going back 34 years of records. If I buy a silly little old uh, three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,400, 1,500-square-foot house in a blue-collar neighborhood, nice neighborhood, you know, in my town, those are retail for 300 to 350 We pay less, but let's call it 350 over the next 10 years, at minimum, that house is going to pay me four to 450000 when we do our matrix with all the earnings. So if I can make that kind of money off of one house, why in the hell would I spend my time flipping or wholesaling? Yeah. Uh, and, and for your flipper and wholesalers out there, let me just ask you this. Those houses you bought in 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, don't you wish you still owned them? <laughs> I own mine because I didn't flip any of them. I bought them. In with the flippers, but kept them. And so we're real practitioners. We teach, you know, twofold. Number one is for people that need the money, how to raise capital to grow and go beyond. We actually have more Century Club members, people with 100 properties in portfolio than anybody who's ever taught, which is kind of crazy since I do three events a year, not three a weekend. Um, But we, we take the handcuffs off. We show you how to raise the money. And then A lot of people come because they just want to learn how to place their own funds better. Some people work with us, not a public offering here, uh, but some people work with us um, and do the placement because they're just like, wow, you know, I'm 55, I'm 60, I'm 65, I'm 75, I'm 80. I've got the capital. I want a better rate of return. I want it safer, I want more secure. But, John, I want to go enjoy my life now. And so I'd rather give it to you. we have a lot of investors that are famous and unfamous. I never share us at a turn, but one that I can share because he gave permission and spoke about it for so many decades on the stage is Robert Kiyosaki, the rich dad, poor dad guy. Known him since 92. I actually knew him back when he was Bob. 
His birth certificate said Robert, but like most Roberts, he went by Bob. And then when he the book became number one, he went back to Robert. And they were one of our good capital investors, you know, for decades. And, and what he used to always say is like, look, and this was Kiyosaki, half of what Burley makes is more than 100% whatever I made. And I can just come home from a tour, plop a big check on John's desk and let John do the work. And then the other thing, and this was a, a compliment, it was also a little bit of how his mind worked. And he goes, and the other thing is that I don't have enough money for Burley to steal my money and go to some island. <laughs> because we have so much. That's diversification. Yeah, that is. That's diversification, everybody. That's how you should define it right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, because is, is your operator wealthy enough that they don't need to think about taking your money for them? And it's a real thing. It is a real thing, absolutely. Real thing, in the, you know, it, it's one thing I have with family offices. Um, one thing they love, one of my capital investors is not the director, but he's a major director for the FBI. Mm -hmm. Oversees the anti-terrorism unit. So he's the guy that gives the orders to the SEAL teams uh, right. to, do their, to do their good work, and God bless them. We yeah. don't want to have the details personally, but God bless that they're out there. Um, and that was fun when we went into business with him because the FBI had to do like a four-month deep dive into me to make sure that it was acceptable because they were worried about him being compromised. So a, a director can't go into business or do direct investments mm. without it all being vetted because obviously there's a concern that he could be compromised. Interesting. And, and, that, so, and that, friends, is called due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> People go, what did they do? And I go, well, I know, the, I know part of the part of what they did, but I don't know most because most of what they did was dark, you know. And they had, you know, dark ops, you know, went in and and did the uh, forensic colonoscopy, as it were. Wow. Um, and so you're not aware of a lot of that. Um, you know, I I did know later. You know, several of our capital investors go, oh yeah, so and so called, and it's like, well, you know, I reached out to to. A large number of them got permission, turned their details over to the FBI um, because they just wanted to vet everything. Is this real? Is this true? And is this squeaky clean? And, and he came on shortly after 9-11. So there really was this massive over-concern. That is due diligence. To that say, is. That, to yeah. say the least, right? To know that they're, they're probing around. Talk about, um, if you could talk about, I think the risk mitigation you said is so important. It's something we repeat to investors all the time is, you know, if you're not losing money, then the upside will sort of take care of itself. Talk about how leverage plays into that equation too. And, and so, so I've been a massive respecter of leverage all my life. Leverage is a true double-edged sword. Cause you got to remember, I started an error when operators that people didn't think would go under went under mm -hmm. when I was a young man. Um, I was born in 60. So I started in this business at, at eight, literally bought my first property at 18, probably oh, would have done it at 16 or 17, but <laughs> I didn't have an adult who'd co-sign. Um, come, come on. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the margins were so thin and I really learned um, a couple of deals early in my career before it was just me. I got out by the hair of my skinny skin skin. I mean, I barely got out and I had to, to change it. So it's like, you know, so I think the first thing people do is, especially people who like buy class C, they're completely oblivious and they buy in and they believe um, numbers that are just completely untrue. They don't put in the cost of the turn. They don't put in the vacancies that are going to be extreme. They don't do repairs. So we got really, really, really honest in the numbers, which meant that a lot of retail deals in a market today, most retail deals, marginal to absolute no go. It just that's the truth. If you're leveraging interest rates are seven and a half to eight ish. 
Um, I don't do DSCR money. I don't do, I've never done a hard money line or doing that. Cause why, why would you on purpose overpay on your major expense? If I got a capital investor who can't sign for a real loan, well, then we don't leverage with that investor because I'm not going to throw away my return and stress my company mm-hmm. because of their inability to be to, to borrow appropriate funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're doing leverage, I mean, you know, we, we're putting in the principal, the interest, the taxes and insurance. We're then putting in the income stream. Now, because I do owner financing, Brandon, mm-hmm. I can get. 15 on the very low end to 25% plus more per month than I would if it was a rental because they're going to own it. People will pay more to own than to rent, especially if they're just missing. So it's like, and then I put them into a home they can afford. So like in 2006, seven in that era, most of my residents were about 40 FICO points away from a $500,000 loan. Well, I was putting them into a $200,000 home they could afford. So when everything hit the fan, they could still make the payment. They weren't underwater. There wasn't a toxic loan, and it was their home. And actually, it was just like the Great Depression. The greatest payment rate we ever had, the non-term rate we ever had, was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. The five worst years of since 1936, the five worst years that invested in residential real estate, we actually thrived more than ever. 91% of our residents in the great crash did nothing but stay and pay. Awesome. It was their it was their own home. And, and there was some I had, you know, I had to call guys who were 20 years older than me and give them fatherly advice. Like maybe yeah. you should go work the graveyard shift at 7-Eleven so you can keep your home because you're going to lose it. This isn't going to be bailed out by the feds. Yeah. Um, and, and so, first of all, learning how to raise the income stream significantly changed it took deals that we would never buy and now made them wow this is hitting our our parameters the second was is like look i hated the landlord tenant relationship it was all it was almost always adversarial um the tenant doesn't like the landlord the land doesn't like like the tenant they both speak terrible words about each other and the costs are extreme i mean so i, I think of all the time it's like well property management's 10 percent the heck it is property management is 10 percent for management and 25 percent for expenses property management is 35 not the 10 percent that people delusionally put on their spreadsheet it's 35 in the real world so it's like how do i get rid of most of that 35 I have to do extreme vetting. So there's a lot of work on the front end that I get why a property manager never would do. They're not paid to do it. We literally do six and a half full application residents, including criminal, everything, deep dive to put one person in a home. But it's what we do. And because we know if we put the right person in, the odds are they're going to stay and pay for years and years and years, many 10, 15, 20, 25 years income streams. That's what our partner desires on, on his or her portfolio. If it's their own home, contractually, legally, ethically, and morally, even under the Landlord-Tenant Acts in most states and all the states we operate in, they can be held responsible and are willing, able, and glad to take care of all the stuff we don't want to take care of. So the clogged toilets, the the, the water heater goes, all that little stuff mm-hmm. is theirs because it's their home. Yeah. And so that that 35% on paper, I get rid of 95% of it. Real world factual numbers, I get rid of about 90. So I take what would be from a traditional property management company, a traditional fund company, a property that would be making, you know, losing or maybe making a couple percent. We take that thing and turn it into a 10, 15, 20% winner, winner, winner. And that's the retail deals, not the good deals. Sure. So we, what it is, is, is I realized back then, of course, back then interest rates were higher. You know, we were fighting 12%. 
is I had to change the model because the model that was laid out almost never worked other than short little windows. And my career couldn't be based on little windows. And the little window would be either interest rates pops way down for the short term or prices collapse in the short term. But you can't count on that. Those are little windows and you load up when you get those. But you have to have a model that sustains in all markets, good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so that so we just go in there. Um, our first year is our lowest year because income streams improve the, the second year, third year, fourth year. Um, we obviously are maximizing depreciation. We also do a lot of things. You know, um, Section 179 still has a lot of play for upfront on the residential sector that doesn't apply in the commercial sector. Most of my investors, we don't do cost segregation. And the reason is, mm. unlike most podcasts, as you know, Brandon, mm-hmm. most people can't qualify for cost segregation. They they may be able to, to get a real estate license for the 750 hours with a spouse, like every podcast says. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you can't have more than 30% of your income be from your regular income. 70%'s got to be from the thing. And the people's like, if you do cost segregation, even if you were at where you would have met the income qualifiers, you're now out after cost segregation. You can't do cost segregation. And here's what really sucks. And I've had some people come to me. If you declare cost segregation, even if it's disallowed, you still reduce your basis and have to pay the taxes later. Really? Yeah, which just totally sucks. And, and all these people are like, oh, I got three houses. I'm going to do a cost segregation. It's like, you can't. You, oh, you can. But if they ever look, it's all what? disallowed and you owe taxes and all that money. Um, it's so, the, so it's the, the, the chocolate sauce on top, like, yeah, yeah, easy, easy. You don't need it. If the ice cream is really good. Yeah. Well, what do you see, what do you see now? Like, what's the state of play now? I see a lot of factors that are rolling through my head that could make your life really fun for the next few years. Are you looking at it the same? Oh, you're smiling. Yeah. <laughs> Smile. So, like, Oh, I see it. I see the opportunity coming. Do you see the opportunity coming? Yeah. So, so my grandfather was an admiral. And uh, 49 years, went in as an E1, fought one, two, Korea and Nam, active duty, Um, ran task force, you know, which as an enlisted man was very, very rare. But he was in the Pacific under under Nimitz and Halsey and those boys who didn't care where you went to school or if you didn't go to school. It's just, you know, could you make a decision, commit and then go forward and get the enemy? Um, And he was very good at that. You know, as a captain of a ship, you've got to be looking at things no one else on the ship sees. And you've got to be looking out on the horizon. And it would be a very, very poor captain of a ship who wasn't always looking on the horizon and always seeing things that should be feared. Mm-hmm. Fear is opportunity, but you need to reduce and mitigate it. Um, that's why we don't do speculation. We don't buy without income streams because we're sure Milwaukee's going up because nobody knows if Milwaukee or any city's going up. People say they know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it could all crash 25% tomorrow morning and not come back for 40 years, which it has historically going back a ways. Uh, and I study history quite a bit. Um, I learned my grandfather wasn't an investor, but I learned a massive amount from him, including really great details about the Depression. And it was interesting. I did the charts. I mean, it's like we're going to have the, another great crash. Well, the big charts would say so highly improbable. The reason is in the United States of America and throughout the world, big crashes happen every 60 to 90 years like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Two things need to happen. The people who were involved in the big crash, and this one going back 32-ish, pain through 36, they need to die. And their children and grandchildren need to die and or completely forget the lesson. So it's not so much that history repeats itself. It's that human beings disregard history and then do the same stupid stuff over again. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. United States of America, there's been four big crashes. Um, going back to chart 1765, 1789, pretty easy to figure out that one. We had the Revolutionary War. Half the country was bankrupt, fighting for either side. So, and then we had the next one was in, in uh, the early 70s after the Civil War. So the point where they're like, hey, these are after wars. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, World War I came and went, and there was no crash. And then you had the, the big crash. Everything's just 29. It was more 32. And that was the crash. And then the next one was in 2008. So the first thing we see, they're 60 to 90 years apart. I remember in 87, um, talking to a lot of mentors, because most of my friends, most of my life have been 20 to 30 years older than me which has sucked the last decade, Brandon, because I'm 62 now. So most of my great lifetime friends are past, have passed away or are passing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I valued their wisdom and perspective that I did not have. Mm -hmm. And because of my grandfather, I listened to people who were older and more experienced than me. doesn't mean I did everything they said, but I listened really well. I remember with a couple of them in 87, is this 32? And they're like going, man, John, it, it's really big, but it's not crossing all sectors. I don't think it is. And in 2001, it's like, is this it? Nope. Okay. And so when, like when an eight hit, we were so prepared because we knew it was coming. I mean, we, you, the, the signs were everywhere. And then Wall Street, of course, does what Wall Street does. The greed button cannot be satiated. Um, and, and you were in the industry, so you know, and people go like, Wolf of Wall Street, was it really that bad? Oh, no, no, no. They niced it up so much for the movie, you wouldn't yeah. believe it. There, there was no ethical dilemma. They were amoral criminals. Mm-hmm who stole over a billion dollars of hard-earned money from people, which today would be like a hundred billion with all the zeros. There was nothing that people like, oh, I want to be like, oh, so you want to be a criminal? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. A person who's probably going to burn in hell and is completely amoral. They weren't even immoral. They were amoral. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I look out today, I see right now lots of, especially in the single family home sector. I like the other sectors, but the problem is right now on the buildings. I love apartments. I, I've owned a lot of them. The problem is that you usually buy those only after big crashes because there's so much, for lack of a better word, there's so much stupid professional money that they're just pounding into cities, buying at 2 4 5% cap rates, and they'll never hit the cap rate. And people are like, why would they do it? 2% asset management fee is why. They buy a $50 million building. They get a million dollars a year. They don't care whether it goes up or goes down. It's irrelevant. It's not part of their model. Be like, that can't be true. It's like, go watch Wall Street. Go watch the Wolf of Wall Street. That is who you're dealing with right now. Um, stop pretending it's otherwise. There's a reason why all the family office money has fled Wall Street. They got tired of getting ripped off for 50, 100 years. So I look out, I see a lot of cash flow plays that scale well within what my company does, but would never scale for Wall Street because they're just putting too much money into the space. That makes sense? 100%. Yeah, we talk about this all the time of sort of playing underneath the, in the real estate case, the REIT radar. Like playing right. underneath this REIT radar of, of places they just don't want to deploy capital because it's a rounding error to them. And so yeah. you can produce returns there because people haven't pu pushed money into those spaces. Yeah. You can do something there. It's just a we, scaling we, issue for them. Yeah. Yeah. We go in nimble uh, underneath mm -hmm. them, although we're actually pretty big boys. Um, the other thing is, you know, I always looked at too, and we buy a lot in like Phoenix, which has always been one of their darling cities because that's where we're based. And, and I, people, how I describe it is like, you know, We've all seen the 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 video. It, it's always on TV. You're in Africa. There's always a drought. There's the watering hole. All you have is the watering hole. And over on the side, there are the lions sitting under the one tree, just leisurely looking at lunch. And eventually, they'll send mom over to get lunch. So the gazelles, they all stay together. 
because the gazelles know that if they spread out, the lions would eat every gazelle. But if they stay together, when they run, the lions might get a gazelle, but the herd lives. And so we've always looked at it that way. And so, I, you know, when the funds are going berserk, I acknowledge it. Look, I'm now the gazelle. I ain't the lion anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go to the watering hole where they're at. Where they are, I'm going to avoid. So, you know, then we go deeper off market. And we still, I mean, my clients don't do it. We teach how to do it. But, I mean, we still let people out knocking on doors. We have neighborhoods we've been sending direct mails to for 25-plus years. Wow. You know, farming and buying the same neighborhoods. I, I, we go into houses a lot. Occasionally, it's me. Usually, these days, the rep. And the lady will literally have 15 or 20 of my postcards and, and direct mailing and marketing. Fees. I was her backup. Good. <laughs> yeah, I was her backup plan for five years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so you know, a lot of it's the off market, and then we have a huge advantage. Almost everybody else in the the more traditional real estate space, outside of the funds, they're trying to do quick short term deals. So you know, the seller's priced at three hundred; they want three hundred. They're trying to beat them down to two twenty if they know what they're doing. If they don't know what they're doing, they're paying two eighty, two ninety, and hoping they get lucky and the market goes up, and they usually don't. We're doing the cash flow model. So I don't need to beat him up on price. I need to come out of there with a payment that makes it work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I can pay more than a fund. Mm-hmm. I can pay more than my competitors because then I learned how to get 15 to 25% more per month. And I learned how to get rid of 25 to 35% of the back end. So my back end numbers are 40, 50% net mm-hmm. higher than a normal operator, which gives us our competitive advantage. It's a lot of work. Yeah, um, I have a lot of people come to my events and like, I'm not sure if I want to place with John or whether they want to do it. And they'll go to a three-day event. And it's like going, okay, this is like a real business. You just laid out a real <laughs> model for a real business. And this is like work. It's like, yeah. <laughs> when did I say it wasn't? I mean, I, I always tell people the first morning, okay, I'm about to say a dirty word. I'm about to say a four-letter word. And they're like, oh, no. And I go, work. Yeah. This is work. Like anything great, it's work. Yeah. You having a great podcast is work. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you, you're a great host. You you really are, and you you work hard to have a following by giving people great information from great operators, and you know doing real estate. It's work. It's not easy. I mean, do you get lucky occasionally? Yeah, but luck's not a business model. It's not a plan. No, no, it's it's a byproduct of the work, right? right. Yeah, who's showing up to a seminar? Hey, if it wasn't work, you wouldn't need to come to the seminar, right? Yeah, you know, people say <laughs> they don't need People think, you know, the the people today they think they can sit at home, watch podcasts, and get rich. You can't. No. You know, and, and yeah, were there people in 1920 who bought houses that were pretty mediocre or bad deals that then they blew up 30, 40 percent appreciated? And they're now gurus. Yeah, but they don't really know what they're doing. And if your plan is, you know, catching the tail end of the ride every 14 to 18 years, because that's how often the ride is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you going to do the other years? And what do you do on the years when it goes down? Mm-hmm. Uh, Long term is what – when you look at real estate, you can trade real estate short term successfully. Mm-hmm. The challenge is the cost. It's 9% to get in and out. Commissions are 6 about 3% closing costs. Mm-hmm. Who would short term trade a stock if you had to pay 9% to get in and out? Like mm-hmm. nobody. It you works. Didn't pay that in the, you didn't even pay that in the 30s. That was the rub on it, right? Yeah, but it, it works, but you're perverting the product. I mean, look, we should – hints. It's a 30-year loan. That's sort of what the product was designed to be. This is a decades-long product on a decades-long cycle. And so holding it for long term, you make the most amount of money. 
And what we did for students, if, if, if you're in the position where, look, John, I don't have money to place, but this is cool, but I need money. Well, then come to the event. Go to johnburley.com. Check out the October event because we teach you how to raise the funds. And part of the raise, it's finding the match, dealing with complete integrity. We teach you a script with the talking points that meet the needs of the investor rather than the Wall Street, blah, 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 blah. And we do a $10,000 per door placement fee because there's work involved. So for, we have a lot of new people that literally – they're like, wow, I was trying to flip, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Now I can go buy a retail deal as long as I can get the monthly income to work, and I can get $10,000 per property, which gets me my get-into-the-game money, helps me pay for my past, helps me pay my bills, helps me eat. And then you grow, and then you know, if you come to the event, I have at least a half dozen. I think there's seven right now Century Club members there who've all made over a million dollars in placement fees. But the real money is their cash flow. They're making forty, yeah. sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a month, and they've got tens of millions of dollars of equity on the back end. So you know, we teach you how to make that transition. Because I'm always like, you know, when I when I took to real estate investors, it's like, why did you become a real estate investor? And they're all it's, it's almost like money and cash and blah blah blah. But when they really started thinking about, it, it's like, well, I became a real estate investor to be free. To have financial freedom. Okay, financial freedom is not a check that you worked really hard for that you have to go do again. Financial freedom is money. In the old days, we called it mailbacks money because mm -hmm. they used to mail the checks in, believe it or not. I still, I still, have use, that. I still use that terminology. So maybe we're, we're outdated on that point. It makes sense to me. I still have a mailbox. I can see it from right here. It's right there. Oh, and Brandon, <laughs> yeah, 35% of my residents still mail the check in every month. We still have about 10%, God bless them, who drop, come in the office and drop it off every month oh. in money orders. Oh. God bless them. Yeah, you know, they just they don't trust the banks. They're not going to do it. You know, the rest are automated. But, you know, we've and we've also got people been in houses for 20 plus years. So, you know, they're not going to change. Whatever you want to pay, pay. I'm good. It's all good to me. Yeah. We don't mind making back run, bank runs. That's good. It is, um, you know, really focusing on the long term because what people want is freedom and flipping. What people don't get is flipping is, first of all, it's just a new job. I hope it pays more than your old job. But if you're doing the flipping, the short term transactions. There's so much risk that you're not aware of. So part of being the captain of the ship, there were always three risks that I cannot control that I have to be fully aware of that most quote-unquote gurus, the term you used earlier that I, I despise, but I understand why it's used because that's what they self-call themselves, that they just act like it doesn't risk. It doesn't exist. So first of all, there's always market risk. At any moment, no matter how good an operator you are, Brandon, at any moment, the market can drop 10 to 20% over 90 days. I mean just down. And if you're doing anything short term, you're dead in the water, screwed, probably under. And you're taking your hard money lenders with you. I always love the hard money. The, the money lenders think they're not in danger. It's like, who do you think goes under when the property goes down? You go too. They take them with you. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is market risk. I cannot control it. Mm -hmm. So I don't do short term transactions. Therefore, if the market goes down, if the market goes down 20% tomorrow and stays down for 10 years, we go, what do you do? Nothing. Nothing. We just collect our income stream every single month on all the portfolio, and when the market's back up, the people will self-cash out at no cost to me because they have the right to buy. So that was how I dealt with market risk. The second thing is interest rate risk. Look, interest rates can change at any time, and they're going to change your model. If your model requires rates to be 3%, you don't have a model. Mm -hmm. You have a little window where you got lucky. Um, I do believe most likely scenario, when I look at, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario, most likely scenario, whether it was a Republican or a Democratic administration, the most likely scenario is next summer before the election, they will ease the rates 
to short-term prop the economy up and try and get more votes. And both parties would do it. So yeah, this yeah. isn't just a Biden thing. Everybody who was president would do it. So I wouldn't be stunned if we get a window. One thing I do tell you guys, if you're getting loans, especially on your own home, don't buy the points down right now. No. If you're buying a house and the builder's offering $20,000, take the $20,000 discount. Don't take the $20,000 buy down the loan. And then make sure the loan you do, this is important, make sure it has a streamlined provision. Because for a streamlined provision, when the interest rates drop, for $500 to $1,000, your bank will let you streamline the loan, meaning it's a two-year-old loan. We're not going to start over with another 30-year loan. It's 28 years left, but instead of you doing 8%, you're not going to do 5 or whatever the rate is. So have a streamlined provision. But don't buy the loans down because the most likely scenario is we will get a softening in interest rates. You, you buy interest rates down when it's 2.65 and you can buy down to 2.25, which I did on a big commercial property. That's a buy down because that loan is like with the moment I did that, you know, my CFO is like, going, so we're never sell, selling that building, right? I, well, it's a 20 year loan. We ain't selling that building. No, we're keeping that building. <laughs> that money, we're never getting rid of the building. You bet. We're going to be talking about sub 3% fixed rate loans on these buildings 100 years from now. And we're like, remember oh. that? Remember when that was, that was crazy. That That's what I've been kind of telling folks is like that, that oh, is a special moment in time. And, and we did. And, and unlike a podcast, see, I pay income taxes and I have income and I have money because if you don't have real income, you don't have real money. It's always a kind of a paradox. How are you getting those great loans and refinancing your properties? If you don't pay income taxes, let me help out. You're not. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm the CEO of a, 30 plus year old private equity company IRS. I couldn't explain if I wasn't taking a commensurate salary, that salary, although I pay, albeit a bit more in income taxes, sometimes intentionally that salary, when rates are low, allows me to go in and show the banker what he wants. Cause the banker wants to see my W2. The banker does not want to see my portfolio income. Yeah. So, so we got the interest rate risk, you, you know, the, the, um, the next risk, and it's the risk that's out there right now that people are trying to ignore is the economic risk. Um, I make sure that we are a true, no more than 33% DTI, no exceptions, because it doesn't work. What the FHA does, they, those programs where go to 46 and 48%, that's predatory lending under their own definitions. Quite frankly, the 38, 39, 41% is too high. So my residents, because of economic risk, I never let them be in. You know, if they make 6000 a month, they can only have a $2,000 home, and that's assuming they don't have debt. We're very, very strict on that because that's what blows up. I, I've never I, I did it when I was new because that's what seminar land taught. Yeah, you know, basically if they got the money and they can fog the mirror, let them move in. Uh, we don't do that. The other thing on our houses, you know, those three hundred fifty thousand dollar houses, it's about nine ten thousand dollars move in money because they have to have some skin in the game because they're not just straight renters. Um, so they have to have skin in the game. There's a lot of things we do. So economic risk is always there. And it's like, you know, interest rate risk, market risk, economic risk is like almost all the people out there teaching. Pretend those risks don't exist. Yeah. They're what you have to be aware of before anything else. And, and then the fourth risk has really come in, I think, in the last five years across America, every state, even the states that, that aren't currently doing it, you need to be aware of it. There is a new social political risk that we haven't dealt with in a major way in decades in America. It was around in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of tenant control. There was a lot of – people do their history. This isn't new. Yeah. None of this is new. Yeah. And so I've got areas that I would not open it. I've got students who are in states. It's like, wow, my county's amazing. We have an operator. They have uh, Terry and Sue. They're in southern Illinois. They have over 200 properties in a, in a county of like 40,000 people, so much that they literally 
for the people who couldn't buy from them on owner financing, they literally bought a class C building, made it class C plus B minus to put the overflow in. However, their county, very, very much pro landlord, pro property owner, pro business owner, but they're in the state domicile of Illinois. So when the state passes a silly COVID rule, they're stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so more and more operators are looking at, wow, don't do it. And some people are moving and be like, well, move it. Well, I did. I mean, in 1989, I uh, sold my practice that was in California, um, my my, uh, equities company, and I moved to Arizona, lock, stock, and barrel because they had just had a crash and California hadn't. I moved for the crash and for the loss. I mean, in 1989, the California, Northern California, not Southern, the Northern California laws were getting bad. Got today. She's a tough place to do business. Um, you're you're nailing it on like none of this is new. Um, sorry to burst people's bubble, and we maybe we think we're we're special, but we're not. We're also human nope. beings. And the book we point clients to is a book called "The Devil Takes the Hindmost," which is yes. a history of financial speculation. Read that. You'll get about halfway through it. And you'll go, all right, I read seven stories about financial speculation, and they're basically all the same. Newsflash, people are the same. We haven't really changed that much. Uh, We live longer. We live in a more advanced society. We live in a better place, frankly, holistically in the world. But, man, we're still driven by the same stuff. We still make bad decisions sometimes. You know, and, and, you know, at our events and people that I work with long term, you know, in our program, literally the most successful people that I work with, people who, you know, who who've done 20, 50, 100, 1000 plus properties, 85 to 95 percent of my private conversations with them about their psychology and emotions. You know, how do I curtail my greed? How do I properly deal with fear? How do I properly deploy? How do I not get sucked into a boom like everybody else? Um, because that's it. And then when everybody's like, well, I'm waiting for the market to crash. Well, first of all, don't, because you have no clue if it will, because quite frankly, we could stutter like we are right now and do a nothing down and go back up. There's no guarantee it's going down. Um, find properties that make sense and deploy your capital. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to deploy more, raise money and deploy more and grow it into a company. And the bigger you have, like when I go into a small city, one of the things that we had to do, you know, if I was going into Milwaukee, um, I need to buy under the radar as fast as I can, 85 houses. I needed at least 85 doors because I needed one person to remarket them who makes no deals and is non-creative and follows the rules always because you cannot get emotional and cut deals like, well, I can do a, a payments on the move-in. I can overlook the application. You can't do that because you you screwing them and you're screwing you. And then another person who buys. So like she's a shark. She comes in and negotiates and wheels and deals and buys great. And then the other guy is just putting people in houses. So I need two separate personalities. And they have nothing to do with they and they can't cross over because they didn't not talk to one another. <laughs> no, because because they're they're the they do completely different things. And then I can run everything home office, you know, through our everything the admin side through our home office, payables, receivables, because we have a regular home office. Um and it's just really for most people though, we're in a we're in a market or two. 
we're heavily deployed in the marketplace. We we know the street and the street knows us. We build up the reputations. Um, we get all kinds of offers accepted at this point in our career because like we've been doing it forever. And they're like, you know, what's the track record? Well, here's two different title officers. They both in the business over 30 years and they've both closed over a thousand properties for me. And they both can vouch that I closed 100% of the time without fail. Always. The money's gold. Take my offer. You, mm-hmm. you will get your commission and your client's property will be sold. Take the offer. It was, you know, we're, we're, you know, the, the old saying, the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We're the bird. Yeah. It's going to happen for sure, which is really for those that are out there. It's why you want to be careful about trying to do all these assignment games and these flipping games and these non-buying and selling somebody else. Because no matter how big a city you live in, at the end of the day, it's a small town and your reputation precedes you. And if you have a reputation for non-performance, that's what it is. I know right now on the the anti-flipping uh, legislation, and California still hasn't dropped theirs, uh, which will probably be the, the most harsh. But unfortunately, the industry brought it on themselves. And, and I can't believe I, I can say this. It's actually needed legislation at this point. The, the guru seminar land have taught people to tie up so many properties with no regard to the individual family living there who it never crossed their mind that you would put an offer in and not close. Because for a regular person, that never crossed their mind. Who yeah. would do that? What person would be so evil to steal from people on purpose? And it's just – it's not that you made the low offer that got accepted. It's that you don't perform. Yeah. Um, I, I know um, many states have gone to licensing. You have to have a license, which will stop some of it, but not all of it because there's bad realtors just like there's bad investors. But I know uh, some of the states right now are contemplating, Brandon, that you have to – all entities that you have any ownership in, so no hiding behind land trust crap, mm-hmm. is you have to disclose your true record. And a lot, you mm-hmm. know, and of course the wholesalers and flippers are going like, wait a minute, John. I mean, I put a hundred offers on, I bought two houses. If I told people I only perform two percent of the time, nobody do a deal with me. Exactly. Because yeah, exactly. they shouldn't. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, at the very least, you're a POS. And most likely you're a crook. Yeah. You don't. You may not see it or believe it, but you are. Because I know, like, yeah, if you watch the book Wall Street, there were several people who were trading on those desks who didn't really see themselves as bad people. Now, the yeah. ownership, senior management, they knew they were bad people. I mean, he knew he what he was. He knew he was a criminal. He just figured he'd have enough money to buy his way out of anything. So, yeah, just making sure you perform. Um, we we are loving this market. We are placing right now. The thing I love about my model is there's we can always carve out income streams. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's easier and we buy more, and sometimes it's harder and we buy less. For us right now, we're on a moderate level because the rents have gone way up and the rents have more room. Um, the, the rents are going to continue to go up most places in the country. Uh, you know, because this is what government doesn't understand, but you and I get look. When you raise the cost of doing business, when you make it harder to evict, when you make it harder to foreclose, when you make us have to follow more rules, we don't pay for it. This is no different than Macy's. If you raise our taxes, we raise the price of the shirt. Yeah, We just raise the rents because that at the end of the day, we're like no other business. I mean, a lot of miles are stressed because they didn't keep up with the rents. So I know I talked to good operators. It's like, yeah. wow, we're really stressed. It's like, well, what have you done with your rents? It's like, well, we've been raising them a couple percent a year. And I go, really? The market's been going up 10 plus in most markets. Yeah. You got to raise your rents. I mean, you have to stay competitive because that person you used to pen, you know, that used to be $20 an hour cost you 35 now. Exactly. Your expenses are going up considerably right now in real time between labor and insurance, et cetera. And you haven't raised rents to market in 10 years? Like, 
Uh oh, we got. Oh, yeah, and, and and the cost of materials and renovations, and, and you know, and even us are are at times having problems with some vendors. You know, vendors that were around for 10, 15, 20 years, then they're always going to turn, but it's just harder to replace than it used to be. There is definitely a different mindset on working. Yeah, short term in America, and it's not permanent. It, it's a short term because you know it, eventually the government will go. We can't subsidize at this level anymore, and people go like, "Oh crap! I guess I have to go back to work." Yeah, you know, and and if I wasn't highly motivated, and they were going to pay me as much not to work as work, I'd probably sit around too. Although I'd go do something, I wouldn't just sit around the house all day. That'd get dang boring. But personal economics kind of personal economics kind of drive the show. Are there new markets? Are you always looking at new markets and new sort of neighborhoods to kind of kind of move into? And and then what does that process look like? Great question. We are always looking at new areas. With that said. I am the most non-shiny object guy you'll probably ever have on your show because I saw, yeah, I saw shiny object after shiny object guy. And it's all the same. They never master a crap. People, when I hear somebody go, I'm a serial, a serial entrepreneur. Here's what I'm hearing. Failed business person. Cause you're a serial entrepreneur. Cause you never got anything that worked. Oh, Cause it, it's like what, what they say on podcasts and, and what's reality. So I've been blessed over the decades, going back to securities and the private equity, I have now over a thousand clients where I had all their docs and all their financials because I come out of Wall Street. You know, We actually asked for and received five years of taxes, income, the whole thing. So over a thousand that were decamillionaires to billionaires. And boy, in the mid 80s, decamillionaire was a lot of freaking money. That yeah. was, you were rich. You're really rich. And so, so a couple of things they didn't do. First of all, when I really looked at what their needs are, and this would be for a lot of your listeners right now, because this is what we do. Um, we provide safety. Number one priority is safety for our capital investors. Number two is security. And that's a different definition. For some people, they're the same word. For some people, they're massively different. But safety or security is the main reason people don't have their money properly deployed. In, inside, on a subconscious level, they're more afraid of losing than they are of winning. And so I meet people all the time. Seriously, 90% of our capital investors, non-institutional, they pulled out of the market in 10 or 11 and most never redeployed. Yep. If they did, they went in on the, on the, 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 the Trump bounce and then it's too volatile. They got out. So their money's sitting non-deployed and they know it needs to be deployed. And all the financial planners are going, rate of return, rate of return, rate of return, make a gazillion dollars. Look at this 50% returns, yada, 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 yada. And they're just going, no way. You're just going to lose my money even more. Because what regular people don't get when you have money, you're not looking for 25, 50% rate of returns anymore. You're looking to never lose your money ever, which is what operators like us do. So safety or security, that's the first thing. That's the most important thing, and that helps our capital investors on a subconscious level primarily solve that problem, and then they can deploy. Because if they could have fixed the problem themselves, they would have stayed deployed. They would have been back in the market. They would be in something. It may be crappy, but they'd be in something. So like if this was 2004 and you were looking to come on with us – you we're probably selling that mutual fund. We're getting rid of that small apartment building in Albuquerque. We're getting rid of your assets that haven't worked well to buy my perceived better assets. So we do safety, then we do security. Next thing, it's long term. Clients I work with and people have money. Look, here's what they want to do. My experience. They want to make what they believe is a really good decision. Almost forever. Yeah. I don't want my money back, John. Deploy it. Redeploy it. 1031 it, redeploy it, redeploy it. Don't, I don't want it back. 
uh, you know, this is not all my money. I'm not giving you my last five million dollars on Earth. I'm giving you five million to deploy. So we deploy it long term. And next thing is we focus on cash flow. And, and Robert Kiyosaki, God bless them, they made that a cash hold. A, a household word that was not a household word 30 years ago and it is now and that's what we primarily do cash flow because at the end of the day my capital investors are no different than you and i here's what they want they want a choice to be retired be able to retire better and earlier than any plan they ever had on their own and that's what we do mm -hmm. and, you know and then the the next thing is you know, tax benefits i mean you and i could spend you know 10 12 hours right now but tax benefits Real estate has them better than almost any other equity class. Uh, residential has more than commercial. Mm -hmm. And they're a good part of income stream to offset income. Mm -hmm. um, we still, though, do buy the properties that if they took away the tax benefits tomorrow morning, it would still work. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and the next thing we do is, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, the long term, you know, a, a solid rate of return. Four percent is their preferred rate. We obviously make much more than that, but that's the minimum they're going to get after coming in on a cash basis. And then the last one, and we talk about this last because for a lot of people who have money, this is not a positive word. You know, the capital growth, the appreciation, because too many people got too burned going for too much. Um, if you're new and you're raising money, if, let me just help you out. If you're talking to a rich person and you're saying more than 10% return, they don't believe a word you're saying. Thank you're you. lying. Yeah, You're lying because you can't on – in their experiences, you can't. You can't make more than that long term on a big scale but only on a for-profit mode where the needs and the alignments of the operator and the investor are the same and married <laughs> to where it's long term. So. We'll work harder to get the good resident because I'm not a property manager. So getting the good resident gets me like $300 more a month income stream than renting it. For a property manager, ten, call it 10%. That, that's $300. That's, that's $3,600 a month. I mean, a year. That's $360 for them. If I was a property manager for an extra $360, I ain't going to run six and a half applications for $360, especially knowing on average I get fired in 30 months. When I look at that, I look at I look at ten year minimums. So that's three sixty. Uh, that's three hundred a month. That's thirty six hundred a year. But that's thirty six thousand dollars over ten years. Eighteen thousand I put in my capital investor pocket. Eighteen thousand goes in mine. For eighteen thousand, my team will go through six and a half applications to get the proper resident that stays in pace. And so that's what we did is we made it where we're fully aligned, and it's what the capital investors want. Yeah. And and then you know they're like going wow. You know, I, a lot of them are like, hey, John, when I first started, it felt like it was a little bit heavy, the fees and, you know, not the fees, but the participation that you got. But after doing it for six months, you get the checks every month. I understand what Mike told me and why I got in with you. Mm -hmm. You make me more than I ever made on my own, and I don't have to do any of the work mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. all I'm trying to do is not spend and get income. And so a lot of things like the one thing where the Wall Street operators are so much trouble, they come in and it's like, look, guys, it's a 10-year-old kitchen. Putting up, and now it's not a fifteen thousand dollar kitchen like the old days. It's a forty, fifty thousand dollar kitchen. Putting in the new kitchen gets you zero dollars per month. Mm -hmm. But the property manager wants to do it because they throw a twenty five percent fee on top as an industry standard. So you know, we look at that fifty thousand dollar kitchen, and I spent three grand cleaning the house out and hauling off the junk, touching up some paint, and moving somebody in as a minor fixer of their own home that they own, which they don't mind doing the sweat equity. So it, it's. Often it's what I don't spend on the rehab and the renovations because that's where people just crush themselves. 
Yeah, we could keep going. This is awesome, man. We could keep we could keep going all day on this. I, I appreciate you so much for for sharing all of this with with our listeners. This is this is a lot. Um, this is really well aligned with I think the way that the way that we think or encourage people to think and arrest yeah. us to think. There's a lot of really good alignment here, John. I mean, it's it's a big thing, um, and and the risk minute the risk mitigation is the biggest point um, for folks. It's like please, please to God. Make sure we don't get blown away here, right? Like keep right. us in the game, keep the cash flow coming, and things are going to work out pretty well. Yeah, and and it look, this is real estate. If you're attracted to real estate, there's a reason. It's a long term game. It, it was never the short term game that mm-hmm. all these education people have perverted it into. You can do it. The question is that my my early clients said money. Yeah, John, you can do this. No money down, low down, creative financing, assign the contracts. The real question is, why would you? Because mm-hmm. when I look at real estate, you know, this is what I know. And, and you know, if you want to know more, guys, go to johnburley.com. We do have an event October 27th to 29th, but go to johnburley.com. There's a lot of great free downloads for you. Uh, a lot of information there. Uh, we do three events a year. But at the end of the day, it's, it's like, look, when I look at this, it's a long-term game, and real estate's designed to make the most money on the long term. If I want to do short-term things, I'll do short-term things, but this is not the sector mm-hmm. where you do it. I, I know they hold up those one out of a 1,000 examples, but they don't show you the other 999 people, half of whom lost on the deals because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know this. I mean most people who flip lose money. They don't make money. They need the market to go boom, mm-hmm. and we're saying is that a true model makes money where the market goes up or down. You know, as the captain of the ship doing risk mitigation, man, I see some storms out there. I also seem to see that they could be completely avoided, but I don't know for sure. So we're batting down the hatches. We are ready for worst case scenarios and worst case scenarios. When the dust just begins to settle for us, worst case scenarios, best case scenario, because unlike everybody else, the greatest years my company had were 9, 10, 11 and 12. Those were our golden years. We bought more than ever before. People actually paid better than ever before. And, you know, we acquired, you know, a portfolio beyond what I thought we ever were going to add to what we'd already done. Um, and one way or another, John Burley is eating vanilla ice cream. Like <laughs> Always vanilla ice cream, man. It could be, Always. It could be, it could be high, could have chocolate sauce on it. There might be sprinkles, whipped cream. There might be some caramel in there and sometimes, and sometimes there might not be one way or another. The ice cream is yes. still good, right? Yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, we like our ice cream with all that other stuff. You know, the chocolate sauce being tax benefits, you know, the growth in the whipped cream, sprinkles, all the yummy stuff that make it better. But at the end of the day, if all I can get is ice cream, I'm still living good. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the ice cream. John, you mentioned, you mentioned the workshops and your site. Anywhere else you want to point people towards? Yeah, so I'm on all the social media. So obviously on Instagram, you can go to john.burley. Um, Facebook, there's a John Burley page. There's also the John Burley Real Estate Group. And we regularly put up a lot of stuff on uh, on YouTube, johnburley.com. Um, so you can go there, check us out on social media, You know, subscribe, like it. And unlike a lot of people in the business, it may be a day or two. If you send me personal messages, I respond, not some 15-year-old sitting in a basement. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. John, will come back at you. If you can't find John, folks, you're not. You're just not trying because you're you're out there and easy to find. John, I want to thank you for for coming on. I think this has been awesome for our listeners. Thank you. We got it. We got to do it again. Um, and and I want to do it when when we get the big shifts. When if we do see some distress, 
I want to do that. We avoid it. I also want people to hear about that too. I think it'd be really interesting. Absolutely, my friend. I, I've had a great, great time. Everybody out there, thank you, and God bless. We appreciate your time today. Look forward to meeting and seeing many of you in the future. And Brandon, if you ever want to come out to Phoenix as, as my guest in an event, just pop me a message, buddy, and we'll hook you up. You know, you know, and you know when I want to come out. You know it's going to be April. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. i'm sick of being in wisconsin so you might see you might see me then <laughs> yeah a lot of people love our fall event late october and our april event in the spring oh, there it is. in phoenix we're we're the opposite we we are the opposite weather um yep. when you got when everybody else's weather sucks our weather is amazing and when your weather is good our sucks which is why you know we talked about this earlier I'm at my cabin at 6,500 feet in Cholo because this is where I spend most of my summer, three hours from Phoenix because, hey, it's a dry heat, but it's too hot in the dead of summer. It's there it just is. Too hot. There it is. I'll see you in April. I'll see you in April. I love it. Sounds great. Take care, buddy. Thank <laughs> you so right, much. Hey, thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, take care.